Welcome to The Power Podcast. I'm your host, Malia Warner. Today's episode is Lies of the Magpie, chapters 42 and 43. Hi, friends, and welcome to the podcast. So glad you are here. Are you thinking, wait, what's going on? I thought last week was the end of the Lies of the Magpie chapters for the summer series. You are correct. I announced that last week was the last week of our summer podcast series and the last week that I would be sharing free chapters from the audio version of Lies of the Magpie. But apparently either I can't read a calendar or I forgot that there are 31 days in August and Monday is August 31st. So technically we still have one more episode for our summer series. That means if you were sad last week that Lies of the Magpie was finishing on chapter 41, good news, you get two more chapters today. And if you were glad that Lies of the Magpie was done and you were looking forward to getting back into the Power Perspective podcast episode themes and topics and discussions, well, the bad news is that's not today, but the good news is it will be next week. It will be next week because I checked the calendar. Yes, next week is September, which will start our fall series and resume the power perspective topics, and we have some great episodes coming up for the fall. I should mention that my family has decided to hike a mountain the last Saturday in August. We are going as a family to hike Mount Timpanogos, which is not exactly like hiking Mount Everest or Mount Kilimanjaro, but to me, it has felt like Everest the times that I've hiked it. And I'm working hard trying to get my mind, brain, knees, and ankles excited about the idea. But I say that because if I fall off of the mountain, then I will be happy that two additional audio chapters of Lies of the Magpie have gone out into the world. And it is only fair to give you chapters 42 and 43 because chapter 41 did leave on a bit of a cliffhanger. In chapter 41, I finally see who Laia is and understand what is causing my body to be so sick, which is great that I see her and recognize her. However, I don't really know what to do about her or what to do to get my body and mind and heart well and healthy again. And so chapters 42 and 43 are important transitions as I come to terms with the fact that I do indeed have postpartum depression and that depression is a physical illness, that my body is chemically sick and that it's not something I'm just going to be able to willpower my way out of. In chapter 42, the reader is able to see me begin to come to terms with this depression and trying to make peace with what I need to do about it. And in chapter 43, you get this hilarious, funny, early marriage story. No, not early marriage, pre-marriage engagement story about my dad chaining my future husband to the front of a broken down farm truck and telling him to pull. Absolutely true story. Of course, this is a memoir. These are all true stories, not exaggerated. In fact, in the book, it's retold very briefly. And I wish I could somehow give everyone the video clip memory that I have in my mind of that day and watching, I laugh about it, watching my husband chained to the front of the truck. Sorry, babe, but it is the perfect metaphor for what is going on with us at this time. And also it offers some great humorous comedic relief in a book which covers such heavy and literally depressing topics. So here you go. Two more bonus chapters that you did not expect to get from the audio version of the memoir, Lies of the Magpie. Chapter 42, now I'm depressed. A few weeks into taking the thyroid medication, an interesting thing happens. I begin to feel depressed. 
It's as if up until now my body was too far gone to even create the feeling of depression. Now that Synthroid is providing some support, my body has just enough strength to successfully be depressed. It's great knowing about Laia, but I don't know what to do with her. Getting rid of her would require chopping off my own head, and that's not the outcome I've been working toward. What's fascinating to me is how she's always been around and how little I've noticed her. I've always acted on her words without really hearing them. There's a story about a traveler who discovers a village of indigenous people who live at the base of a 300-foot waterfall. The scenery is picturesque, lush, and green, trees laden with every sort of fruit, a literal garden of Eden. But the sound of the waterfall is deafening, and it never stops. All day and all night, as the man stays in his guest hut in this paradise, he is close to going crazy with the sound of the waterfall. One day he asks the village chief, How do you stand the noise? The chief replies, What noise? And the man says, The noise from the waterfall. The chief stares blankly. What waterfall? The villagers had grown so accustomed to the continual sound of water crashing that they didn't hear it anymore. This happens when we no longer hear the ticking of the bedroom clock or the buzz from the air conditioner. This happened to me with Laia. She produced such a constant dialogue in my head that I didn't hear her. I believed anything and everything she communicated without really listening to the message. These revelations have me teeming with questions, but rather than feeling hopeless like I did in Dr. Thorpe's office, these questions excite me. Who is Laia exactly? Is she my brain? Is she my thoughts? Where do thoughts come from? Dr. Amen says a thought is an electric signal sent through the brain. This notion that thoughts are as real and as powerful as electricity reminds me of what happened to my favorite climbing tree. Growing up, the front yard of my pink farmhouse was shaded by the branches and leaves of four huge trees. During a thunderstorm, the tree closest to the road was struck by lightning. The power of the lightning bolt shot through the tree and exploded a hefty piece of concrete out of our driveway. The tree itself appeared unscathed, and I begged my dad not to pull it out. It looked perfectly healthy on the outside. But dad decided the tree had to come out before a minor windstorm blew it over onto our roof. The chain on his tractor yanked out the trunk, revealing that the inside of the tree was completely black, fried all the way down to its roots. Lightning did that? I said to my dad. He answered, Lightning is concentrated electric power. Never underestimate what electricity can do. The volley of constant negative thoughts fired by Laia over the years has fried my body. It's not obvious by looking at me, but my innards are torched. Another discovery, courtesy of Dr. Amen, is that emotions are real and tangible in the way that liquid nitrogen is real and tangible. I used to think of emotions as ethereal concepts that existed in a floaty sphere, more adjective than substance. Anger, surprise, loathing, love. What is it that makes us feel emotion? Why does my heart race when I'm surprised or scared? How do butterflies of nervousness work? Why does my chest seem to swell when I see Kate learning to ride her new bike without training wheels? 
These are physical reactions to emotional experiences. How does it work? Dr. Amen says that feelings are chemicals created by thoughts. The electric pulses of thoughts trigger the brain to release chemicals into the body. And when these chemicals brush across nerve endings, we physically experience sensations known as feelings. I try to think about it this way. Every color of paint offered in the Sherwin-Williams catalog is a combination of the three primary colors, red, yellow, and blue. Every emotion experienced by the human body is a combination of three main brain chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. There are more than three brain chemicals, but for my sake, I need to keep it simple. The brain contains shelves full of cookbooks containing recipes for hundreds of feelings. Like a restaurant chef slaving over a hot stove, the brain is constantly preparing dishes according to whatever the customer's thoughts have ordered. When I think a thought, I have placed an order in the restaurant of emotions and the chef is going to season my plate with pleasure or poison according to my demands. No wonder I'm sick. Once the brain has been cooking up venom soup for so long, it forgets how to make joy jello or happiness hamburgers. For years, I have simmered my organs in toxic marinade, then questioned why my systems won't function. I owe my legs, my lungs, and my liver the world's biggest apology. I wonder how I can make amends with my muscles. Organs can malfunction. For example, a liver can become insulin resistant, or kidneys can become less efficient at filtering the blood. The brain as an organ can also malfunction. The brain can misfire and release recipes for emotions such as depression or anxiety into the body without being asked. This is what I am experiencing. My body is releasing the chemical recipes for sadness, despair, worthlessness, so I am feeling these emotions even though nothing in my life would logically trigger these emotions. If my brain is misfiring, then getting off my butt and getting to work is not going to fix it. The light is gradually dawning that I might not be able to elbow grease my way out of this. In the office, the computer screen lights up. A few clicks on the keyboard and the Google search bar takes me to WebMD. This is far from my first visit to this web address. In the past, I've searched childhood immunizations, pinworm, fifths disease, postpartum thyroiditis, Epstein-Barr, chronic fatigue, multiple sclerosis, cancer, and Hashimoto's. Tonight, for the first time, I type in symptoms of depression, expecting to read a list along the lines of feeling lackluster, showing disinterest in life or relationships, lack of caring, extreme sadness, inability to cope with responsibility, desire to shut down, etc. Here is the actual list. Number one, difficulty concentrating, remembering details, and making decisions. Number two, a foggy or muddy head. Number three, fatigue and decreased energy. Number four, feelings of guilt, worthlessness, and or helplessness. Five, feelings of hopelessness and or pessimism. Six, insomnia, early morning wakefulness or excessive sleeping. 7. Irritability, restlessness. 8. Loss of interest in activities or hobbies once pleasurable, including sex. 9. Overeating or appetite loss. 
10. Persistent aches or pains, headaches, cramps, or digestive problems. 11. Persistent sad, anxious, or empty feelings. And number 12. Unusual preoccupation with death, accidental or intentional. Number 12 knocks the air out of my lungs. Unusual preoccupation with death. Is it possible my death premonitions aren't real? These horrific scenes that flash onto my mental movie screen, are they because my brain is broken? They aren't a sign from God? My future is unveiling for me in a whole new way. Discovering Laia for who she is has unlocked a world of possibility. It's possible that I'm not a failure. It's possible that I'm not a disappointment. It's possible that I am loved. Reading that one complication of depression can be an unusual preoccupation with death opens this possibility. I'm not going to die. It is possible I have depression. The website explains that having five or more symptoms is evidence of depression. I have all 12, in a big way. This should be such a horrid revelation, but I'm so relieved by the newsflash about not dying that I clap my hands in front of my chest and collapse back against the chair with a dazed sort of satisfaction. It's depression. I have depression. Aaron comes with me to Dr. Thorpe's office. I need moral support to go through with accepting a prescription for an antidepressant. Maybe if the medicine were called a neural stimulator or a proneural balancer. Anti sounds so rebel military faction. This is the first time Dr. Thorpe, Aaron, and I have been in an exam room together. They graciously wait for my lead. Lai and I rehearsed this moment extensively, but never got the wordage quite right. What am I supposed to say? So I've been thinking that I might have depression, and even though I haven't wanted to take any other medications you've prescribed for me, I'd like to try some antidepressants, please? Instead, I take out my red medical notebook and read off symptoms as though I have very scientifically been studying myself and jotting down my observations, which I suppose I have. After a minute, Dr. Thorpe says, Do you have a history of depression in your family? No. I say. Yes, Aaron interjects. What do you mean? I look at Aaron. She has at least two family members who have taken medication for anxiety and depression. Dr. Thorpe and I answer at the same time. Really? How would you know that if I don't even know that? I ask Aaron. He's never mentioned it. Who? I want to know. Aaron gives a look that says, I'll tell you later. In my family, we were raised to be so good at keeping secrets. All the reasons I don't want to take an antidepressant spill out. I already have to take the thyroid medicine, so now will I have to take two pills every day for the rest of my life? I don't want to live dependent on drugs. A lot of people take an antidepressant for a period of time and then find they don't need it anymore, Dr. Thorpe offers. But if I have to go through a weaning phase to get myself off a drug, why don't I just go through the weaning phase now? Why can't I get my body to mend itself? Sometimes the body needs to be reminded what it's supposed to do on its own. A drug can reboot your system, or you might have to take it the rest of your life. We really don't know. How will I know what is me and what is the pill? I ask. 
I don't want artificial love, patience, happiness, and intelligence that come from a bottle. What you feel right now, is that you? Dr. Thorpe asks. No, I don't feel like myself at all. The purpose of an antidepressant isn't to create a false you. It's to give your body support so you can be the real you. Dr. Thorpe writes a prescription for sertraline. I don't reach out to take it, but Aaron does. One last question, I say. What causes depression? Why do some people get it and some don't? Dr. Thorpe closes his laptop. Are you familiar with dogs? I assume the statement is rhetorical. Different breeds of dogs are known for having better temperaments than other breeds. This is going somewhere, I presume? People are like dogs. Some have better temperaments than others. The room is silent. I wonder how my ancestors are responding to this valuation of our lineage. Did Dr. Thorpe just put me in the same category as an unbred pound mutt? Bless his heart. Driving to the pharmacy, I apologized to my pioneer forebears who possibly traveled in the same wagon train as Dr. Thorpe's progenitors. Were they forced by the Thorpe family purebreds to the back of the line for their ill temperaments? I tried to focus on good thoughts and not on what Laia is telling me that Dr. Thorpe thinks of the people for whom he prescribes antidepressants. Hopefully, I won't run into anyone I know at the pharmacy. This is different from elementary school when I wanted to break my arm and get a cast for the attention. I have no intention to take my pill bottle to mom's groups for my friends to sign. That'll be $75, the pharmaceutical technician voices through the intercom. Is that a 90-day supply? He looks. It's a 30-day supply. $75? Every month? For the rest of my life? Now I really am depressed. A few days later, we arrive at Anise's house for Thanksgiving dinner. I am quivering the way my kids do dripping wet out of the hot tub on a cold night. They say it takes a few weeks to adjust to medication. She tries to console me. For 16 days, I swallow the sertraline pill. For 16 days, I am ready to jump out of my skin. I need to explode, but I can't figure out how to explode in a socially acceptable way. The good news is that I'm sleepy. The bad news is that once I've fallen asleep, I cannot wake up again. No amount of sleep is enough. At my follow-up visit, I tell Dr. Thorpe, The sertraline is expensive. Is it possible to get a prescription for 100 milligrams and cut the pill into five pieces to bring down the cost? Dr. Thorpe says, you don't have to take sertraline. Let's change the medication. A lot of people do well with good old Prozac. It's time-tested and it's cheap. I start with 10 milligrams, the smallest possible dose. At the drive-up window, the pharmacist grabs the microphone. That will be $5. Anything else for you today? $5. I can do that. There is no shaking with the Prozac. Chapter 43. Ball and Chain. This is my new daily routine. I wake up and take a pill. Before bed, I take another pill. Laia comes into the bathroom while I'm putting the pill bottles in the mirrored medicine cabinet. Aaron will see those bottles every time he reaches for his toothbrush. I raise an eyebrow. He knows I'm taking medicine. But you should never let him see the bottles and never let him see you swallow a pill. You shouldn't do anything to remind him that you're broken. 
The pill bottles go to the back of my closet shelf, behind my shoes. I can see Laya's point. Aaron walks on eggshells around me. He never knows how a benign comment might be misconstrued. If he steps to the right, he might trigger an explosion. If he steps left, he might trigger a dam-breaking burst of tears. If he does nothing, there is no limit to the misinterpretation his silence could induce. Morning and night I swallow my pills, but I don't know the prescription to fix my marriage. Dr. Amon says that the strength of a relationship is cemented by the brain's limbic system. As you grow close to someone in an intimate relationship like marriage, the trunk and branches of the brain's limbic system grow larger. You can measure the development of a relationship by physical changes in the brain. When an intimate relationship is damaged, it is physically painful, like cutting down a tree in your head. Wounded trees ooze sap. Wounded limbic systems bleed anger. This is why it's nearly impossible to have a civil divorce. I don't want this to happen to Aaron and me. I love him, and I know he loves me, but sometimes we look at each other and see strangers. He comes home from Goodyear one afternoon to find me curled in a ball in the middle of the living room floor, surrounded by boxes of unopened Christmas decorations. It can't be easy living in the same house as someone with depression. Danny's teacher told me she's worried because he plays alone at recess. Kate clings to me like a dryer sheet on flannel. Jack doesn't speak. He's 17 months old and he won't look me in the eye or try to communicate. I'm worried he might be autistic. Tanner seems fine, but what if I've damaged something under the surface in him that will flare up in the future? I try to be happy. I try to put on the smile, but it seems the medicine is taking forever to work. I once had a pen explode in my hand on the very day I'd chosen to wear my favorite white blouse. At the sink in the girls' restroom, the harder I scrubbed, the more the ink spread until the white porcelain was smeared with black, the air dryer had ink handprints, and the floor around the garbage was littered with watered-up black-stained paper towels. There was black ink on my pants, blouse, and on my history textbook. The rest of the day, the ink spread to whatever or whomever I touched. Looking around my house, I see my black handprints on every surface, on the side of Kate's cheek, and around the chub of Jack's little arm. While Aaron and I were engaged, he joined my family for a 4th of July camping trip. We weren't married, so I slept in the camp trailer while he stayed in a zipped closed tent with my younger brother, who had eaten chili beans on his roasted hot dog. But that wasn't the bad part. Instead of driving our reliable Ford truck, my dad had decided to pull the camp trailer with his ancient blue farm truck. It had a diesel engine and was held together with scrap wire and welding. The rest of my family rode to the mountain with mom in the comfort of the air-conditioned minivan, but Aaron, in a measure of goodwill and desire to become better acquainted with his soon-to-be father-in-law, volunteered to ride with dad. Forty minutes into the drive, the blue truck vapor locked. Vapor locking is something diesel engines do, perhaps a combination of overheating and fuel flooding. I can't say for certain because I don't understand the mechanics. All I know is there was a lot of smoke, and the truck that was pulling all our food and my bed and bathroom for the weekend wasn't moving. By the time the rest of the family came back for us, Aaron was chained to the front of the truck, pulling with all his might while my dad pushed the back of the truck. 
taking the steering wheel, my job was to keep the gears in neutral while attempting to master a dance combo step of tapping on and off the gas pedal and pumping with precise pressure at the opportune moment to get the engine rolling. Tap, release, pump, tap, tap, release, pump. When the engine didn't turn over, Dad appeared in the window, reaching across my lap, fiddling with the gear shift and barking repeat instructions about the tapping, pumping pattern. Through the windshield, I could see Aaron bent over, panting to catch his breath, sweat pouring down his face. His shirt was plastered to his back and he kept hefting up the chain around his waist in the way a man hoists up loose pants without a belt. I can only hope we'd unhooked the camp trailer before Aaron started pulling. The incident became one of our favorite family legends, retold and reenacted with fits of laughter, the legend of how Aaron proved what he would endure in order to marry me. Now, I have become Aaron's ball and chain. I am the vapor-locked, rusty old truck, the deadweight Aaron must pull. He is chained to me. He's chained to our business. He's pulling the weight of the housework, the cooking, getting the kids ready for school. With our printing business, he's doing the work equivalent of three people. We can't go back and undo starting the magazine. We are stalled in the middle on our way to camp, and we can't go back, but our engine is smoking, and we don't know how to move forward. Aaron must be tired of towing the load. During this time, our family is saved by Grace. Grace is a seven-week-old chocolate Labrador puppy. Her brown eyes are huge and dewy. We could all absolutely melt into the pupil pools beneath her puppy lashes. We are puppy-sitting for our friends Keith and Marcia. Animal therapy could not have arrived at a more opportune time. Grace works her magic and becomes a fuzzy cushion for our worn-out family. In her small, furry body, she holds the love and affection we need right now. Grace bounces out the back door, her little legs trying to keep up with the kids. They send her down the slide and take turns holding her on their laps while they teeter-totter. She takes it all in stride. While Danny and Kate are at school, I open the door to the garage playroom and find Tanner lying in the center of our giant beanbag with Grace snuggled against him. Her little head is draped over Tanner's outstretched arm while he strokes her fur with his other hand. Grace has found her comfortable spot, snuggled tightly into the nook of Tanner's heart. Quietly, I kneel next to the beanbag and rub Tanner's hair. Would you like some lunch, Tanner? Mom! Tanner speaks without moving an inch, careful not to wake his play-weary companion. Puppies are my favorite persons. I have never trained a dog, but I experiment with training little Grace. From the pantry, I get a few moist puppy treats. Come here, Grace! I hold a treat in front of her nose. She looks at me with her dark eyes, eager to be obedient. Sit! Grace drops onto her tail. From the corner of my eye, I see Jack copying Grace's actions. He falls to his bum and lifts his chin, hoping for a tasty surprise. No dog food for you, mister. Let's see what I have. I rummage through the treat dish on top of the fridge and find a few Hershey kisses. Jack stands stretching on his tiptoes, hanging out his tongue and yipping for a treat. First, you have to do a trick. I unwrap the candy and hold it in front of Jack's nose. Sit! I command. He drops to all fours and pants like a puppy. 
I give him the chocolate and pat his head. Good dog, I say. Jack barks. Maybe he isn't autistic. At dinner, Jack shows off his new trick to the family. Danny and Kate laugh in delight. Aaron smiles. Tanner climbs off his chair, unwraps a candy, and is thrilled to discover that Jack will sit on his command as well. We laugh as our three-year-old puppy trainer and 17-month-old human puppy interact. Danny shows us a poem he wrote in school, along with his crayon-colored drawing of a heart. Pets stay close right from the start. Take them home and put them in your heart. Grace bounces, wanting more treats. Come here, fuzzball. Aaron picks up Grace and holds her to his chest, stroking her head. You are a silly puppy. I look around my kitchen and see a smile on every person's face, including mine. Just when we're certain we can't do another print deadline, Bob comes over to meet with Aaron and me regarding news about the magazine. Sitting at the kitchen table, I brace myself for the worst. I'm crouched, ready, and watching for the next obstacle to appear, like the TV show Wipeout, hoping I'll be able to dodge the sweeping arm but prepared for my feet to be knocked off the platform. Bob sets both hands on the table and clears his throat. My colleague in Albuquerque has been pestering me for years to sell him my publications. Bob leans forward. Now that you two have gotten a Southwest Valley edition up and going, he's even more interested. He's made an offer. I wanted to show you the numbers and see if you might be interested in selling. The numbers add up to more than a generous offer. The best Christmas gift we've ever received. Aaron and I look at each other with a collective sigh of relief. We take the offer. Aaron's load looks remarkably lighter. Bob leaves and I fill my hand with puppy food and head to the garage, calling out Grace's name. Here, puppy. Here, Grace. She scampers to me, stops, and sits. Her wet tongue licks up the treats from my palm. I bundle her to my chest and collapse into the beanbag, overwhelmed by the miracle of this purchase offer. I'm suspicious whether Bob really wants to retire as he claimed, or if he is more aware of our situation than we knew. In either case, he has graciously opened an escape hatch out of our sinking ship. I bury my head into Grace's fur, wishing for a good cry, but these days I struggle to summon tears as much as I struggle to summon joy. The softness of her coat against my neck reassures me that one day I will be able to cry again. Aaron and I decide to move to Utah. Without the magazine, we can live anywhere, and we need help. We need to be closer to our parents. We need nature, mountains, shade trees, and seasons. Our kids need their grandparents. Aaron sends out his resume, and within two days he gets a phone call from a business in Utah that has acquired a printing company as part of a merger, but they have no idea how to run it. They want Aaron to start yesterday, but they agree to wait until after Christmas. The job offer includes the opportunity to buy ownership in the company with substantial return on investment. We decide the new company is a perfect place to invest the income from selling the magazine. I will stay in Arizona with the kids so Danny and Kate can finish their school year. Aaron will begin his new job, living with his parents and sleeping once again in his old basement bedroom. After work hours, he will explore housing options and fly back to Arizona to visit us every other weekend.
everything seems to be falling into place. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed chapters 42 and 43 from Lies of the Magpie. The remaining five chapters and epilogue are really the meat, the culmination of the entire story. The final chapters are really what I wanted the entire book to be about. In fact, in earlier manuscripts, there was not much of what now comprises chapter one at all, because my intent as I began writing this experience was really to record the things that I'd learned, my aha moments, how my perspective had changed, and captured the things that helped me most in my healing journey. And so those are the things which are now contained in the final five chapters. And I tell readers, part two is hard, but you make it to part three and it's worth it. And especially the final five chapters are the chapters that I think I would read as a reader. I would read over and over again. They really are the reward for making it through the rest of the book. And how unfair for me to talk about all of that because I am not going to be sharing those chapters on this podcast, but the entire audiobook from prologue to epilogue will be available soon. I'm not going to say a date when, one, because of my obvious struggle with calendars, and two, because I really don't know an exact date for sure, but as always, I will keep you posted. My friends, have a fantastic week. I will meet you back here next time for the first episode of our fall series where we resume the themes and topics of power perspective. Until then, be safe, stay healthy. I'll meet you back here next time. Bye-bye.